When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So the reading of the biographies of Walt Whitman, and then sharing them here and commenting on them, has led not just to writing a long series of poems about Shakespeare, they are about Whitman as much as myself as they are, cloaked in the biography of Shakespeare, but it has also led, as anyone who's listened to the past month of episodes knows, to just wondering what it is, uh, not just a a poet is, but what any person is, really. I mentioned that uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to share quotations on creativity from various writers or painters or musicians and such is to show that there is no list of Ten Commandments, there are no do's and don'ts uh, for what poets should do or what poets should expect. Uh, Every moment is new. um, So that when I think of the pose or the uh, persona that Whitman took on for himself, as this exuberant, energetic, physical being taking in all of reality and all people and becoming some kind of embodiment of American democracy. And then you go to his biography and you hear about him uh, hanging out at a bar called Faf's in New York City in the late 1850s. And you would assume that someone... The, the person that I just described, this exuberant person, would be in the crowd, would be making a scene who uh, these days might be uh, getting arrested or kicked out by the bouncers. But instead, the image that you have is of Whitman sitting with his back up against the wall, just sort of watching and listening to people. Part of the reason for this is that uh, uh, Fafs was also the haunt of not just poets and writers, but of Whitman's fellow journalists, because at the time, uh, Whitman, while he may have been known sort of infamously as a poet, as the poet of Leaves of Grass, this strange book that some people thought was uh, profane, uh, he was mostly known 
especially in the New York world, as a journalist. And the biographies also mentioned that uh, the fellow journalists that would congregate at this bar would sort of make fun of Whitman, uh, I guess for pretending to be a poet or for uh, almost being like, uh, we know who you really are. Uh, you aren't this person in your poems. And it's kind of silly that you should imagine yourself as being this exuberant, outgoing person. And the other image that I came across just a few days ago is when uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson pays Whitman a visit and they go out to eat together. Uh, and then a few days or maybe a few months later, I can't remember which, um, Bronson Alcott and Henry David Thoreau pay Whitman a visit. And it seems that Whitman was uh, comfortable enough in the presence of Emerson, just the two of them talking. They seem to have gotten along. And he was comfortable enough in the presence of Alcott. But when Thoreau showed up, there was kind of a freeze. He didn't really know what to do with himself in the presence of Thoreau. And it seems that Thoreau didn't really know what to do in the presence of Whitman either. So that there's always this expectation. It's expectations that I want to destroy here. There's always this expectation, even if you aren't Walt Whitman, and even if you aren't uh, trying to present yourself through your poems as being this outgoing person who uh, is in physical connection with everybody and knows everybody and uh, um, and is also some perfectly eloquent as well as perfectly physical person. Even if you aren't trying to be that, there seems to be this assumption about not just poets, but nowadays just about people in general, that we should all be naturally effusive, naturally social. Uh, the image that we're given uh, on TV from sitcoms or the image we're given in movies, whether in uh, action movies or sort of uh, indie movies where everybody uh, talks uh, with great wit all the time. The assumption, I think, and even from uh, uh, other versions of that, uh, of listening to talk radio constantly, whether we're talking about Rush Limbaugh or National Public Radio or podcasts or anything you can think of, the, the image that seems to be imbibed by everybody now, um, not just me, apparently, um, is that this is how we should be. We should be like the person who is able to host a radio show. We should be able to do our version of talking for three hours every day about whatever it is that interests us. And it should be immensely strange that anyone should be occupied with whatever it is, writing, teaching, gardening, going to the store, uh, doing home repair, whatever it is, uh, the, the assumption seems to be that we should be able to just talk about it with anybody. Uh, 
We imagined that someone like Whitman or Thoreau would have gotten along together. We imagined that someone like T.S. Eliot or Robert Frost would have gotten along together. Um, we even imagine, I guess, today that in their private moments that uh, the politicians we see on TV uh, apparently uh, should, in their private life, just be able to get on together. We don't realize how much of what we see is not how they really are and not really how we should really be. And so I love that image of Whitman. I love the idea of going from Song of Myself to some guy in a beard that only a few people recognize sitting with his back up against the brick wall of a claustrophobic basement bar in New York in the late 1850s. And just by chance today, from reading a uh, biography of William Shakespeare, I came across a letter written by John Keats on October 27th, 1818. And uh, he stuns me. How, how old is Keats at this point? Um, he's in his mid-twenties. Um, not mid-twenties, he's, yeah, he's, he's 23. Um, and this is what John Keats says. Uh, I'm the, the letter is sort of uh, scattershot, so I, I am skipping parts, but this is, the, uh, this is the meat of it. He says, As to the poetical character itself, it is not itself. It has no self. It is everything and nothing. It has no character. It enjoys light and shade. It lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low rich or poor, mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving an Iago as an Imogen. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. It does no harm from its relish of the dark side of things any more than from its taste for the bright one, because they both end in speculation. A poet is the most unpoetical of anything in existence because he has no identity. He is continually in for and filling some other body, the sun, the moon, the sea. And men and women who are creatures of impulse are poetical and have about them an unchangeable attribute. But the poet has none, no identity. He is certainly the most unpoetical of all God's creatures. If then he has no self, and if I am a poet, where is the wonder that I should say I would write no more? Might I not at that very instant have been cogitating on the characters of Saturn and Ops, which were uh, protagonists in one of his long poems? It is a wretched thing to confess, but is a very fact that not one word I ever utter can be taken for granted as an opinion growing out of my identical nature. How can it when I have no nature? When I am in a room with people, if, a, if I ever am free from speculating on creations of my own brain, then not myself goes home to myself 
but the identity of everyone in the room begins to press upon me. That I am very little, that I am in a very little time annihilated, not only among men, it would be the same in a nursery of children. I know not whether I make myself wholly understood. I hope enough so to let you see that no dependence is to be placed on what I said that day. And I had a hard time reading part of that because uh, he is saying something difficult and trying to make himself understood. But it's remarkable that he goes directly from that sentence to saying this. And this is the end of the letter. In the second place, I will speak of my views and of the life I purpose to myself. I am ambitious of doing the world some good. If I should be spared, that may be the work of mature years. In the interval, I will essay to reach as high a summit in poetry as the nerve bestowed upon me will suffer. The faint conception I have of poems to come brings the blood frequently into my forehead. That's incredible. The faint conceptions I have of poems to come brings the blood frequently into my forehead. I know that feeling. Uh, all I hope is that I may not lose all interest in human affairs, that the solitary indifference I feel for applause, even from the finest spirits, will not blunt any acuteness of vision I may have. I do not think it will. I feel assured I should write from the mere yearning and fondness I have for the beautiful, even if my night's labors should be burnt every morning and no eye ever shine upon them. But even now I am perhaps not speaking from myself, but from some character in whose soul I now live. I am sure, however, that this next sentence is from myself. I feel your anxiety, good opinion, and friendliness in the highest degree, and am yours most sincerely, John Keats. Uh, that is just a remarkable thing to read uh, when he says, When I am in a room with people, if ever I am free from speculating on creations of my own brain, um, I'm just sort of speechless. That 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 is the feeling, uh, at least that I have had a million times. That um, I mean, just tomorrow uh, I'm to drive eight hours, and then eight hours or so the next day uh, to take a beach vacation. And I know that the entire time I will be thinking about these things. I will be thinking about uh, writing a poem be thinking about reading a book. I'll be thinking about uh, watching something new on uh, Netflix or Amazon that will clue me into uh, revising a detective novel. I'll be doing all of these things rather than being present with people that I love, uh, people in my family. And that feeling produces a lot of guilt sometimes. It certainly has in the past that um, to put it one way, I remember reading the the jacket flap biography of uh, of an author, and it simply said, you know, when so-and-so isn't writing, he is tending to his horse farm in North Carolina. And for so long, I thought, I, 
if I only had a horse farm, if I only had a hobby outside of all of this, if I only had, uh, uh, maybe if I, if I only taught, if there was some, uh, some other counterbalance to this, like being on a seesaw, uh, I'm always sitting down and the other end is always up. There's no balance. Um, and I felt guilty about that, that, uh, uh, my family can, members of my family can have their jobs, or they can be retired, or even my wife can have her job, and at some moments can be at one doing something that isn't involved with reading and with writing, and I have just never been able to do that. And as Keats says, if I am ever able to f be free from that, what I'm really doing is not being a social butterfly uh, it isn't uh, going from person to person and seeing how they're doing or giving a piece of myself to them. Uh, it is absorbing them. It is uh, not going home to myself, but to the identity, as Keats says, of everyone in the room. And that, that feeling of absorbing everyone is one also of annihilation, because you do begin to realize that uh, at least I do, uh, that I have no nature. Um, I do not have a character. I do not have a self. Uh, it is everything and nothing. Um, and I'm sure that uh, in the past few years, the past 20 years, I'm sure that uh, in realizing some version of that statement, uh, not put as eloquently as Keats has, but realizing something like that, that I am not a whole person, that I am not a complete person, that there is not room enough for a complete person, for someone who is uh, living with the voices of poets and storytellers and the dead, and uh, someone who then wants to take all of those voices that he's lived with and express them somehow in a story, or a poem, or an essay, or a podcast. There simply isn't enough room for this complete person. But now, uh, coming to today, coming to May 5th, 2021, at just after 10 o'clock at night, I do think about everyone else. Um, I do think about... Uh, the members of my family that I'm about to see, or the people that I admire who are able to walk into a room and apparently be at ease with everyone and talk with everyone and not go home feeling emptied or annihilated or distracted. And thinking on this now, I don't think that they are complete people either. I don't know that there are complete people. I don't know where this expectation of wholeness or of consistency or of balance comes from. Uh, I know that a few years ago there was the idea among uh, female executives of having it all, being an executive, being a wife, and being a mother, and uh, cooking dinner and going to soccer practice and uh, making it to the boardroom, all of that. And there was pushback um, 
from other women, as far as I remember, like, well, what, what does it mean to strive after that? Why is that some kind of an ideal? And outside of someone who's uh, making millions of dollars a year and who can hire people to, to help her and her family, how is that even possible? Uh, what, why is that an ideal state to want to achieve so many things at once? Um, and it brings to mind uh, uh, a book publisher that I, I saw uh, 10, 15 years ago now who published only poetry and I went to see maybe I could submit something to them but it said right there uh, as their disclaimer on their submission guidelines that you better be ready to do readings you better be ready to sell yourself you better be ready to be the product as much as your book is uh, this was must have been right after or just about the time that uh, Twitter got started YouTube had been around for a few years um, the poetry MFA sort of factory business was in full swing as it still is now uh, the whole idea was sell yourself sell yourself uh, become some kind of a character and of course that idea isn't knew either Whitman knew how to promote himself but but I remember laughing at that I remember thinking well what about the people who can't do that what about the uh, the amazing writers who are not able to do that I think of the the guy I read from last night Hart Crane who would have absolutely no ability as far as I'm aware to do that um, and there's also, uh, uh, if anyone has seen the new Ken Burns documentary on Ernest Hemingway, uh, he's someone else like Whitman who uh, lived up a persona and then was not able to get away from it. And you have this amazing uh, image of this this man, right? This man, Hemingway, who has made this macho persona for himself. But the persona did not involve book tours or doing public readings. He was apparently petrified and nervous of doing this. And by the time he was interviewed in older age on TV, he only agreed to do so by, uh, by having access to the questions in advance and writing out the answers so that he could read them. And it's one of the saddest things in the world, seeing this this reinventor of English prose, uh, like on some version of 60 Minutes, very obviously reading and reading badly his answers to uh, these bland questions on TV. Um, so it's, so it's, a, it's a response and an answer that I never really thought I would come to with all of this, with the, with the episodes I did on jealousy and stubbornness and the uh, 100th episode, the sort of uh, uh, fake manifesto and everything I've been saying about Whitman, what I'm seeing, at least in my mind and my experience and from what I've read of others uh, 
this doesn't seem to be that far afield, is that the thing that bothers creative people, and I, and I imagine bothers anybody, is isn't anything that they've done wrong. It's the expectation of what they think they should be doing. Um, I think that I'm not successful because I haven't been published by such and such a house, publishing house, or because I don't have an agent, or because uh, some poet that I think is crappy uh, has all of these things and I don't. Um, or the idea of Hemingway. I'm not as famous as Hemingway was, but fame then is different from what fame is now. Um, if we can jettison these expectations, if we can find a way to deal with these images we are given by the press and the popular culture every single day, and nowadays we just don't even, it's, uh, we don't even give it much thought of what we're imbibing every day. I mentioned Rush Limbaugh in the same breath as NPR, not because I think that they are uh, talk with equal veracity on subjects. Uh, they both have their limitations. Um, I would still much rather listen to NPR, although uh, I'm getting tired with certain tendencies of theirs, but still. Even there, even with uh, a sort of boring, sober truth of NPR, is the expectation of a sober, eloquent voice that can speak on and on and on, and there's never a pause like that one to make you a little uncomfortable, to make it seem as if, not as if a professional is speaking, but as if a human being might be speaking or thinking or worrying. So that the answer for me, um, if there is one, if there's really even a question simply of how to live and what to do, uh, that is Wallace Stevens' great uh, title, How to Live and What to Do, simply seems to be to, uh, at least for someone who is like Hart Crane, uh, not able to deal with all of this, who just wants to do the writing and get it done, um, is to ignore it is to ignore as much as possible the book reviews, to ignore social media, even though I'm not even on it, but it's sort of hard to even get away from sometimes, uh, to ignore the way that TV or streaming or the radio or other podcasts talk about very personal and humane things or just about art, or culture, or history, to just simply ignore it and see what happens. Um, don't know if that really has a beginning or an ending, but that is what I have for tonight. So thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, 
You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.